0: dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple hey everyone it's reed before we get started it's 2024 we've been waiting here it is we've been talking about this everything we did in 2021 to prepare for 2022 everything we did in 2022 to prepare for 2023 it all comes down to this guys now 10 months 10 months to election day i hope you'll get involved with us I want to say thank you for listening i hope you will share this with your friends your family your colleagues in the american pro-democracy movement i hope you'll sign up lincolnproject.us join the union.us get involved everybody every moment counts and i cannot say thank you enough and now on with the show back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reid Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Tina Witt, resident MAGA expert and insider at Puck News, where she chronicles the transformation of the GOP and the egos and intrigues there within, in Trump world and beyond. Prior to her time at Puck, she wrote for Mediite, Vanity Fair, Politico, The Daily Caller, Tina, and some other now either defunct or probably defunct outlets, which we'll get to. Her first book is out this week, everybody. Go get it. The MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out, which is available wherever fine books are found. Today, she's coming to us live in studio from Washington, D.C. Tina, welcome back.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to rock and roll again.
0: So listen, one thing I will say is that, you know, you and I have, I don't know how long we've actually known each other, a couple of years, maybe. But the one thing that I said to you right before we started recording was you don't often find members of the mainstream media, as I put air quotes out here, who came from a more conservative political ideological space than I did. Not, and I'm not particularly ideological anyway, and I'm not particularly conservative. So it was always interesting to talk to you, one, because you so innately and inherently understood what the Republican Party has become, but also because, you know, look, I have some revulsion at my own party, but it doesn't stop me from looking at it objectively, if that makes sense, which is you can say I'm disappointed in what's become of my party, I'm disappointed in what's become of people I used to know, but that doesn't mean I can't tell you exactly A, why they do something, B, how they do it, where they do it, what they're doing it for, And say, okay, now, that at least as a political, I don't even know what I am anymore, Tina. I don't think I'm a consultant anymore. Um, (laughs) I I now understand how to beat them, right? And I used to use those tools to beat Democrats. And now I use those tools to beat people like Donald Trump. So tell us, how did you find your way to the world? And let's start figuring out how we got you out. Man, oh, man. Took me
1: a while to figure out exactly how I got in or out. Like, that was the entire process of writing the memoir. but. What I realized after years and years and years of thinking about this was that I entered the movement as someone who really was obsessed with the Founding Fathers, one, and wanted a career in journalism, too. And when you look at me, for listeners who cannot tell by my last name, I am an Asian American woman whose parents were refugees out of Vietnam, who grew up in Boston. And you're like, wait a second how are you everything that you just said you are, but then also getting into the world of conservatism? And the two primary factors that drove me to the right to begin with, and this was circa 2008, 2009, Ron Paul time, was one, I did not have the privilege of a lot of the people I went to school with. I went to this really elite private school and scholarship, but Around ninth grade, I started realizing, oh, my God, there's an entire set of rules that they know to follow in order to get into Harvard or any of the Ivy Leagues. And, like, this place was so elitist that anything that wasn't in the Northeast of that caliber was considered a loser institution. Like, people stopped talking to me when they discovered I got into Tulane.
0: (laughs) It was that bad. New Orleans is for Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest and nothing more.
1: Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) But that was what my parents knew was successful because they were refugees. They had no idea what was important in America other than like education of a name brand level. Like at one point I read about this in the book. My mother was disappointed I didn't get into Harvard. And so she started putting pressure on my younger sister to do so. And there was a really passive aggressive note she left on my youngest sister's desk that was like, you have two options. Either you're going to one, Harvard, Yale, or stand for, she spelled it incorrectly, or two, community college. And that was the dichotomy we sort of lived in. And second, in my weird journey, I was a giant nerd about the American Revolution. I grew up in Boston, literally down the road from John Adams's mansion, Peacefield, living, like, just living in history all the time. Even Milton was tied to the American Revolution and had, like, founding members who ended up somehow related to, like, signers of the Constitution. So I learned about the revolution. I was obsessed with these ideals. And the moment that my boyfriend at the time was like, hey, I'm going to go to this one college in California that's obsessed with studying the Founding Fathers too. Also, they're giving me a lot of money. I'm like, wait a second. Could I have a career where I study the Founding Fathers for a living?
0: That's pretty cool. I want to do that. And that ends up being Claremont McKenna.
1: Absolutely, to a T.
0: And, you know, so Claremont McKenna out, it's sort of – halfway between los angeles and california's vast inland desert basically right and it's also got the claremont institute which from my perspective tina and i'd love to get yours as someone who you know i don't know if you spend any time at the institute but certainly went to college there like could have been in munich in like the early 1920s and 30s right like this is a place that does not when it when it talks about conservative thought we're not talking about conservative democrat small d democratic thought we're not talking about conservative small l liberalism we're talking about a very distinct strain of conservatism bleeding into a really ugly, dark place. i uh, That's my opinion. Mm.
1: Uh, so first of all, I do have to defend my college institution. Claremont McKenna is its own separate entity. However, back in the founding times in like the 50s or something, there was a group of professors and intellectuals who kind of made their home at Claremont McKenna called the um, West Coast Straussians. And they had a separate institution all the way out in, I think, Newport Beach that was officially the Claremont Institute. And there were students that went from Claremont McKenna, met these professors, dabbled in the research institutes like I did. And then the Claremont Institute was like, oh, my God, come to our functions. We're going to have plaque-tie galas and you can apply for scholarships here and we'll sit you in a really fancy hotel on the beach with like-minded individuals and you will drink wine and discuss the virtues of civic society as written by St. Thomas Aquinas or something like that. And it's a very fancy form of nerdery, but, and I apologize to readers for going real deep cut conservatism here, but I think it's crucial to understand. The West Coast Straussians are the adherents of Leo Strauss, who is a philosopher in the 1940s and 50s, and his approach to studying philosophers themselves was that there is esoteric knowledge because in those texts that you can only understand if you are studying the era in which they operated in the intellectual milieu of the time and in cases where those thinkers would have been persecuted— um, being able to read between the lines and derive the meaning of what the guy was actually trying to say. And the East Coast Straussians kind of kept their study of these texts up to, I would like mostly the ancient Greeks, occasionally the Christian theologians, um, especially when it came to the topic of what exactly is good governance. How do you build a civic society that promotes virtue and cooperation? Etc. And then the West Coast Straussians were like, what if you threw the founding fathers into the mix? Let's do it with them. <laughs> and it's one thing to study ancient Greeks and the Romans and the medieval philosophers because like they're hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But the founding fathers, their principles apply to like the present day. And The Claremont Institute's goal is, the motto is literally preserving the ideas of the American founding, and they apply this strain of philosophical thought to the works of the founders, the constitutional documents, Lincoln, leading up through the modern day, and they have such a reverence for the founding fathers to the point that it's a little bit, and I apologize to the Claremontsters listening to this, a little circle jerky sometimes.
0: How could it not be? I mean, you're talking about a group of men and you mentioned St. Thomas Aquinas or Plato or Socrates or Ludwig von Mises or Friedrich Hayek. Name your nerd, right? It's a very small subset of people talking about an even smaller subset of dead people, right? So how could it not become circular in some way?
1: Especially if the entire idea is only like you are smart enough to understand what they're actually saying. You belong in the club. No one else can get it, especially those people who want to be progressives and junk their ideas and move into the future.
0: But this is an important thing that sort of you weave throughout. And again, as we were talking right before we started recording is, you know, I've spent now four years with a lot of Democrats, donors, activists, voters, you name it. And I remember when I taught a class at USC a million years ago, that there is a belief by many, many, many on the left that if you are a conservative, that you are a knuckle dragging mouth breather. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. But what I've tried to explain and what I will try to impart to our listeners here, as we see the movement that you were coming of age in, and is now, frankly, darn near close to full flower and nearly in power again, Tina, is that, yes, Donald Trump might be crude and brutish and ugly and certainly not an intellectual, but you should never apply that to the people who have been working on this stuff. The kinds of things that you, went, those events you went to, those conversations you had, those people you knew, the pe- some of the people you're describing in this book, that have been working on a definition of what they believe America should look like philosophically, morally, governmentally, for 50 frickin' years. And you don't do that without a significant amount of thought. You don't do that without a significant amount of organization, without a significant amount of nose to the grinds, don't kind of work. And please understand I'm not praising it. And also a significant amount of money. Right. And so whenever someone on the left says they're a bunch of morons, I could say there are plenty of stupid people please understand the people that Trump has surrounded himself with may be bad from my perspective. I'm talking from Reed's perspective, but do not underestimate their intelligence and their willingness to do whatever they think is necessary to eventually bring their worldview into power in this country. Now, that's my perspective. I'd love to get your perspective. Obviously, you're my guest.
1: Look, I think one of the things that also did help me was that I had tried to spend time covering progressives as well and Democrats. And there was a hot second at Vanity Fair where I sort of just don't have the bandwidth to cover the right because I still feel a little bit emotionally attached and have weird hangups over the entire thing. But I went into covering progressives with the same idea that there was some amount of organization and some amount of infrastructure or... Um, coherent intellectual thought or community or like even a sense of community. And I did not find that at all. Like it was just a whole bunch of people who wanted to make the future happen immediately and break things while they did so. But not
0: put the work in.
1: Mm -mm, Not at all. I think this is the only book you'll ever read that has both like an original interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Tucker Carlson. but. I interviewed her in 2018 or so after she got elected, and she was talking to me about this pretty grand vision she had about how progressives were going to make their stance known in Congress, and she was always like, we can't negotiate, we can't negotiate, because they want to drag us over here, we have to stay here and maybe go a little bit further. And I'm like, good luck, Congresswoman. And I was talking to another woman who was the chair of the Nebraska State Party at the time she was telling me that there were people in Nebraska who probably would have been Democrats if there had been enough money to reach out to them. But the Democratic backbench had been so hollowed out over the past eight or so years. There hadn't been enough people trying to identify uh, good candidates for local office, much less state office or governors, uh, not even Congress. And she was like, yeah, I only got $30,000 this year to operate. And I'm like, are you serious? That's it? And like, I don't know, she just seemed to be operating in this little island. And I figured that there would probably be like some network of activists or someone she could call on to, you know, swoop in and help her out occasionally the same way that the conservatives did. But like, she lacked that. And all of the money from these progressive donors were going to their own things. Like the... Shiny objects, as she called it
0: back in. God, it must be 2021 now. Rick and I were in Austin, Texas, doing a a fundraiser. It was a friend raiser, whatever. And we were taking questions. And there was a woman who'd run for Congress in central Texas as a Democrat, which is (laughs) that's tough. That's tough sledding. And she said, you guys should have taken some of that money that you raised in 2020 and helped me turn out indigent Democratic voters in Central Texas. Now, this is a very niche population. I don't know how many indigent voters there are in McLennan County, Texas, (laughs) right, Waco? But there can't be that many. And I said, I have to be honest with you, ma'am. That's the Democratic Party's job, not my job not our job. And that's the one thing I had seen is, and you mentioned this in the context of Barack Obama. And I think this is also a, and I'm just thinking about this on the fly, Tina, is where because of all of the assets that the conservative movement in this country has at its disposal, they're able to take advantage of things. They took advantage of the rage. And I do believe it was rage on the part of many white Americans when they saw Barack Obama elected president and you know, Trump and the birth certificate and Kenya and socialism and everything else to use that as a spark that then allowed them to go swoop up. I think you said 17 governorships, thousands of legislative seats, hundreds of you know state Senate seats, statewide offices everywhere. So Barack Obama is sitting in the White House. The Democrats at, for a time, remember, when he first took office, as you know, around the time of Obamacare, this is when you would have been in college. And the Tea Party and everything else, they had the House, the White House, and 60 seats in the Senate. And two years later, gone. But from what I can see, again, I say this less as a criticism because it's not worth criticizing anymore, but as an observer, is the Democratic Party, for my part, what's concerning and what has not allowed them to compete effectively in too many ways is they thought if we elect the president, We've got everything.
1: Mm, Absolutely. They got a little too uh, high on their executive action supply.
0: Right. And this belief, as we saw now with with the Dobbs decision of now almost two years ago, that somehow like Roe v. Wade would never be overturned. The Supreme Court would never flip. Mitch McConnell would never hold open a Supreme Court seat. Right. Like all of the things that Republicans did because they understood and they understand the nature of power, I feel like Democrats either, A, still to this day don't understand, or B, we're sort of fundamentally uncomfortable with, whereas Republicans are like, if you're going to let us do it, we're going to do it. And even to this moment, I feel like, Tina, people still underestimate what these people can and will do.
1: Right. I had noticed a weird trend throughout my early years on the right that sort of alarmed me the moment I stepped outside and watched it grow further and further. Like, there's an ex-boyfriend I get into the book. He ends up becoming a notorious internet troll. But the thing is, is like, when you look at him from college, he was sort of exhibiting the same behavior. At one point, I believe he outed the student body president to his parents back home in Missouri simply because he did not like the way the budget was being spent. And... I think in normal world, that would be considered rather sociopathic. But not only was he rewarded for it, he like became an actual Claremont Institute fellow. He started getting to know Peter Thiel. He started getting his work retweeted by Trump. And like the funny thing is, I think that the immune system that conservatism once had for itself to keep people like Chuck and like his allies out of the driver's seat just started failing. And I think it was because of the
0: Internet. Dot com slash Lincoln. Odu, modern management made simple. Let's bring, you know, conservatism and mass media together. You go back to Father Coughlin. Rush Limbaugh. And then I was going to use Rush was my next thing, which was both basically radio. But radio was for a mass audience. And how many how many hours a day do people you know, do people we all know that we're listening? Did they tune into Rush religiously, religiously? And whatever it was, he said came out the other end. And your book said something that I read someplace else. And I experienced this personally now four years ago. It's hard to believe when I was in New Hampshire. It was the day before the New Hampshire primary in 20. And Trump was doing a rally there. And I was dressed like this. So I could sort of still code Republican. Right. And I'm asking questions of people and whether or not it was the young kids who driven over from Vermont the middle-aged couple, the group of old people. Why are you here? Why do you support Trump? And they all said the same thing as if they'd all gotten the talking points in their email that morning. It, It was just a reminder, even to this day, Tina, how effective and efficient that web of communication, starting from the likes of Rush, we evolve into Fox, we evolve into the Chuck Johnsons of the world and the Daily Callers of the world, we evolve into Tucker, right? And now, like, When Tucker was still on the air, as you know, like he'd get, let's say, three million people a night. But how many more Americans saw, to your point, saw what he was saying, the highlights of what he was saying every night, either because of his Twitter feed, because of Fox's Twitter feed or because of the massive machine of conservative online people, whether or not they were paid or unpaid, that pushed all of that stuff further and further and deeper and deeper into the countryside.
1: That is the infinite fringe, dude. That is a phrase I right. came up with, and I'm very proud of it. But uh, but yeah, like the idea that Tucker Carlson could suddenly become not influential because he got kicked out of Fox is sort of ridiculous, I think. Someone pointed out to me in his orbit after he got fired that Tucker's online following is so massive. His monologues on YouTube alone would get 1 million views a pop just on a regular basis.
0: So now that's 4 million people.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then the thing that I believe Fox and a bunch of media observers did not understand about Tucker was that he did not care about getting a $40 million payout. Like, that was irrelevant to him. He would rather be in a room with just, like, a camera and a microphone live streaming to the world, even if it was on like an iPhone 3.
0: Is is evidenced by his recent conversation with the internet troll Cat Turd. 2. Mm, good
1: old cat turd.
0: Right. Uh, but that's real. Like yeah. that's a real thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> and the moment that he saw his contract, and the contract said you cannot do anything else until December 2024 after the election, he was like, I am not doing that. Screw these guys. I'm going to figure out every single way I can around it, which was why his um, the first thing he needed to do uh, was get his name back into the public consciousness as quickly as possible. So he had control over his Twitter feed legally. And so he started working there. And then second, he did not strike a deal with Elon Musk. That was the thing everyone thought he was going to do. And he was like, nope, I'm just going to be a content creator. And whatever revenue comes in through here, it's the revenue that comes in through here. I'm not like I'm not being exclusive on this platform, but I am just going to keep talking and you cannot stop me. And frankly, Fox has not, which is a fundamental thing that they definitely overlooked, I thought.
0: Because there's the what's called the Streisand effect, right, which is – Barbra Streisand famously got mad at some guy for taking pictures of the beach in front of her house, which is in California, public property. She made a big thing about it, and then it became everybody now knows what beach Barbra Streisand's house is on in Malibu or wherever it was. Right? It became oh, a know much that bigger was thing.
1: The origin of the yeah,
0: phrase. If she had just like been annoyed and walked back into her house and closed the door and finished her coffee, like nobody ever would have cared about it again. But if they go sue Tucker now. That's the greatest thing in the world that could ever happen to him. Oh,
1: exactly. Absolutely.
0: Right. Because he would be able to say, I told you I was out there as the truth teller. Rupert and Lachlan and the rest of them are just a bunch of rhinos. They hate you. They hate me. They hate the truth. And that's why I think they have left him alone because they're like, well, what are we going to do now? Yeah, I guess we could bankrupt him. But at that point, people would send him millions of dollars. And you know as well as I do that there's some conservative out there, whether or not it's Richard Uline or somebody else, who would pay his
1: legal bills. Yeah, the um, big issue, just going back to Tucker, though, is I don't think he particularly cares about like consequences as long as he's able to really hold that grudge against someone who's wronged him. Like I'm not quite sure how he's going to take this book or whatever I'm saying about him publicly. But I remember pretty distinctly, and this was literally the first time we ever spoke. I'm a 22-year-old nothing who's in his office. And he learns where I went to high school and then just starts going into this rant about how much he hated my high school principal. And I'm like, why is this? This is so funny. And he goes, yeah, it's because he was hitting on my girlfriend at the time. And this is a grown man telling me this Decades after it happened, and it's also the first thing he ever told me. And then like, a decade later, I decide to interview him for the book while he's still at Fox News. And I decide to ask him about what he believes the state of conservative media is and the state of media overall. And most of the time, I would say like 20% of the time, he's just, like, ragging on people that he hates. Like, deeply, deeply hates. Uh, ben Smith is a reptile creature. Ariana Huffington is a narcissistic rich lady. Um, everyone in so everyone in D.C. who hung Black Lives Matter signs on their windows was just more like trying to pamper themselves morally. It was like going to Soul Cycle for them. And I don't doubt that his rage against the establishment is really genuine. I really think it is. I think he's one hundred percent a dyed-in-the-wool populist. I also think that part of it is motivated by people who criticize him.
0: And, you know, it's this weird thing. And you see this in Trump, too, right? The guy from Queens who always desperately wanted to be accepted by the people in Manhattan. And when Tucker is younger, right, he's not a populist. Um he's sort of a nerdy guy with a big moppy head of hair and he wears the bow tie, right? And he's well thought of. I mean I remember going to the gridiron dinner as late as 2017 and he's walking around white tie and tails and everybody's still patting him on the back, "Hail fella. well met." Right? Even ba- I mean, I guess it's almost 7 years ago now, but he hadn't completely crossed over there. He was still very well accepted in American or DC political and media culture. I don't think he would be now. I also don't think he'd go to that event anymore. Oh no, he the I, insidery of the insider. I don't
1: think he would ever really want to live in Washington or New York.
0: Well, me neither, but like that's that in and of himself doesn't make him. Yeah. Bad, aside from all the other things he does.
1: I mean, first of all, their quote unquote didn't exist back then. And second, one of the things that themes I hit on this book over and over and over again is incentive and structures and industries and institutions. And I think Tucker is at his core a magazine writer and magazine writers, yeah, the other journalists. But they're also very witty, incisive, really good at insulting people. Like, if you can't insult someone as a magazine journalist, what are you even doing? And also, like, more prone to indulging in wacky ideas and conspiracies.
0: Well, you got a lot of space to fill.
1: Well, not just a lot of space to fill, but you're kind of just like, what is this weird story? I'm going to go over here. Wow, you are so crazy. Oh, my God, I'm going to write about this. Like, that's an instinct that I still hold, and I was at Vanity Fair for a while.
0: And you also have you typically might have time too, right? a print magazine. You know, if it's a specific niche topic, you might spend weeks or months on it. Right. So you also have plenty of time to sit there in your own head and just sort of cycle through every possible outcome, variable and everything else. And while you're out there, right, you might pick a few weird, you know, fruits off of this tree and, you know, vegetables off of that plant and, you know, see what sort of mixes it up. And of course, as a magazine writer. It's not a 900-word op-ed. It's not a 1,200-word news story, and it's not a 50,000-word book, so you got to keep people interested. Mm.
1: Yeah, but it is really cool if you can. Not going to lie. Sure.
0: Uh, no, the people that can do it are brilliant at it.
1: Why, thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know if those qualities serve Tucker as a television person, though, and I do sort of think that they go... Counter to who Tucker was at the beginning, one of the best examples I have of this in the book is, um, you know, that face that he makes on TV, like the one that's like kind of like squinty and open mouthed and like nodding all the time. It looks terrible on TV. However, when he's talking to you in person and he looks at you like that, you just suddenly find yourself just like spilling your entire heart to him because it's like, oh my god, I'm talking to a guy right now who must know everything about my life, or else the world will end. It's really effective in that sense.
0: We underestimate, I think, and I'd love to get your sense as a media, a member of the non-aligned media, I guess, that the crazier the thing that Tucker says or the crazier the thing that Trump says or the crazier the thing that Chuck Johnson says or the crazier thing A, B, C, D, E, and F, it has to get covered. And it might be because Donald Trump is running for president of the United States. It might be because, to your point... Someone who wants new Tucker can't understand it and wants to show what a nut or a loon he's become. Or somebody is trying to tag the MAGA slash Republican movement with, you know, you're, you open the book with, it was Tuesday when the Nazis showed up, <laughs> right? Like, but in the process, that is allowing all of that on the right to really dominate the conversation in the country. And it's this mystification that, Eight years, nine years into the Trumpocene era, reporters, people on the left, Democrats, average human beings still haven't figured out largely how to decode.
1: Yeah, it's a weird bubble that I think reporters have built for themselves, unfortunately. And I'm constantly trying to test my own assumptions on the MAGA movement as well, because sometimes they will just like veer completely into nowhere. But there just seems to be a general non-like inability to accept that the world could go the way that the world has gone. And once you start realizing the context in which a lot of media people grew up in, they're kind of a self-selecting group who increasingly had to go to certain schools in order to get their foot in the door.
0: Right. Like if you didn't go to a mid Atlantic slash Northeast liberal arts college and then make your way to Northwestern's Medill school, right. Do you even journalism?
1: Yeah. And like at a certain point, even hiring someone as the token conservative doesn't really serve you well in a newsroom because one, your very existence kind of makes everyone else in the newsroom go like, "Mm, are you legitimate or not? And two, Whoever is the token conservative also always ends up being constantly questioned by their editors as to whether the thing they're trying to report is right or not, or whether it's just based in a non-reality.
0: One of your editors was talking about that. I think I don't remember the exact story, but he was like, that's too fringe. And when I read that, I'm like, I don't know how many years ago it was, Tina, but I'm like, it's not fringe anymore. Look at what we're seeing. Think about this, just to bring it, you know, to 10 days ago, when you have Aaron Rodgers, an NFL quarterback, going on a very popular ESPN show, not a political show, an ESPN show, spouting talks about pedophiles and Anthony Fauci and everything else. Like, you don't think it's mainstream? It's ESPN freaking in. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, there always seems to be questions of like, oh, there has to be an adult in the room to, like, pull Trump back from doing this, or pull, like, get everyone to stop doing this, or tell Aaron Rodgers that he can't stop saying it. But the very act of someone in power trying to tell someone not to do something is poison. Like, it is absolutely poison to everyone who is not powerful. And, you know, honestly, once you're in the mainstream media, it's just a constant uphill battle to keep fighting that assumption over and over and over again. Like, the moment I tell something that's someone that something's happening on the right, just like anything anodyne, it's like they start yelling at me to try to convince me that I'm wrong. And I'm like, I'm just telling you what they're telling me, guys.
0: No, and you talked about at Vanity Fair when somebody asked you about, is Trump going to win the nomination? You're like, I think what, Trump could win the whole election if <laughs> they, they move their desk away from yours, right? Just by being near you, somehow the radiation is emitting. You know, the gamma rays will infect them too, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Ooh, going back to that point about the... Like media bubbles. Here's an interesting thing I've also noticed over time. The reason I got into the right to begin with was through a conservative journalism program, which is a thing that exists. Uh, They find promising young journalists who are, in my case, quote unquote, liberty minded and throw paid internships at you and make that upon condition of going to a seminar over the summer about journalism in the free
0: society. Right. Sort of the free vacation for a timeshare pitch kind of ideology.
1: Mm -hmm. But what if you're saving America doing it? What
0: if you're saving civilization?
1: Ooh, yeah, that'd be great. But the moment that you get into right-wing media, you're – Resume is just absolutely sullied at that point. The rather you get into, like, right-wing anything, your resume is kind of sullied. And so I knew all of these people who ended up going to Fox, to the Washington Examiner, New York Post, any of these places that were, like, considered right-wing, and they'd be doing amazing journalism there. But at that point, if they tried to get out, people would be like, we're not hiring you. You used to work at Fox." And so at that point, you have a couple of choices, which is like one, just give in and keep living your life and go down this road Two, just like quit somehow. Three, go to one of those expensive journalism schools to purge your resume and prove that you're actually a really good journalist. And I had to pay $100,000 to do this or in my case, become a grinding content monkey and blog for like
0: three years. But let me ask you this, not to sound too old fashioned, but don't you think that the trials and tribulations of your own personal time in the desert, which I think anyone who has been in that desert and we all have our own and has walked through it and come out the other side and found a metaphorical oasis such as it was. Doesn't that in some ways make it all worth it too? like if you if it had just been handed to you, if they just came and said, hey, by the way, you haven't done anything. Right. And by the way, now we're starting this thing called Puck and we want you to come like, would you be ready for it? Would you be as good for it? Would you be who you are without that? And that's what I see is like, but for all of that friction to get where we are, you wouldn't know enough to appreciate it.
1: I mean, it's nice that I do, and I'm happy that I do, and I'm happy that someone pays me to tell people about this, and I'm happy that people are listening. If I were not at Puck, I think I would be having a much harder time covering the right the way that I do. The great thing about Puck is that they view the world through that lens of power that I was talking about earlier, but also, like, who's trying to be in control, who's losing control, and it allows me to treat the right as seriously as I can without like sneering about it or being like, Oh, it's never going to happen. <laughs>
0: well, because for me, this particular right wing movement in this time with Donald Trump as its head. And it's, I guess it's, you could be, you could go back a hundred years or whenever you too, governance is sort of a, a chimera. It's a, it's a shine. They put on things. It's really control to me anyway, because if you look at the people like, in congress right that are sort of the biggest adherence to this stuff i'm sure chip roy right that goon i'm sure he could cite many of the same conservative philosophers you do that guy has no desire whatsoever to actually be a reasonable person in government he's just there to do the kinds of things that you were talking about earlier
1: i mean look that was the entire point of the conservative movement to begin with right it was oh no Lyndon B. Johnson has started to use the executive branch to enact a great society and do all these things that are moving society a little bit like too forward too quickly. It's also happening in Congress. What if they're communists? Oh, no, we need to get control of these institutions over time. It doesn't matter how long it will take. And we're going to devote a lot of resources to thinking about how to do this. Now, the vision that they had for what they wanted society to look like sure didn't look like where Trump and the Tea Party and people before him, what have you, wanted society. Like, that vision does not match what the movement founder's vision was. Let's say Buckley, Goldwater, what have you. But the overall mechanism is still there. And... When you have a whole bunch of people who grew up inside this mechanism, learning how to do things one way for the ostensible achievement of a certain vision of conservatism, and then the right in America moves like far elsewhere, what are you going to do? You still want to maintain control. You still want that power. Otherwise, you lose literally everything you've spent your adult life working for.
0: Yeah. and Look, I mean, I remember being at a dinner in Baltimore a couple of years ago, and I was sitting across the table from a guy and he was very much in the mold of people you were talking about. Right. This was a beautiful club, nice wine, everything else. He's in, of course, a perfect suit and tie. I am, of course, completely underdressed and he's going through the whole thing. And he said, and of course, there's always the left and the powers of the left. And I said, with all due respect, sir, I have now spent two plus years with these people. Like, they can't organize a two-car motorcade without getting in a fight about it, (laughs) right? So let me just say that, like, all of the stuff they want to do, one, is fundamentally, especially the most progressive, Tina, is still fundamentally out of step with the vast majority of the country. But also, they're not nice enough to, A, each other, or B, other people to ever get it done. And C, they lack the discipline. And I think that's what we've seen. Again, I always say that the movement on the right, as much as I disagree with what it has become, and I do, you know, is well-resourced, well-organized, and relentless.
1: Right. And the movement on the left just loves shooting their own the moment that they become— you know, pragmatic in some way. Like look what's happening with John Fetterman. The moment he supports Israel, the entire progressive left turns on him and now calls him the most like evil guy who ever existed. And then they completely forget the part where he's the senator from Pennsylvania, which is purple. Like, so purple. It is not your progressive utopia. There's no way he can take the pro-Gaza position without alienating, oh gosh, how many, like how big of a percentage of Pennsylvania voters?
0: Right. The home of the Tree of Life synagogue? Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Like, it's so short-sighted. But this is what happens, I think. The right-wing movement is bigger and better funded and on the move, and the left-wing is smaller more crystallized but neither one of them operate in a reality of how actual human beings live and i think this is to me the biggest part is like democracy demos is about the people and both of you are all talking about how you want to tell other people how to live their lives and americans as you know are fickle and allergic to that kind of stuff just by by our constitution small c constitution not even big c constitution like americans of all colors, creeds, religions, regions, whatever, for the most part, first and foremost, wanna be left alone. Oh, yeah. Right? That
1: was, okay, no, if when people ask me, oh my God, Tina, were you like a Nazi or something? I'm like, no, what I really wanted was that libertarian moment called everyone leave us alone and the free markets were cool and everyone would like be okay with what you thought and rational self-interest ruled the day. Whenever people ask me exactly what I believe politically, I just sort of go, that's what I'd like.
0: All right, so let's fast forward here. So you've come through this time. You're now covering the right. It's 2024. We are now in the third week of January. As we're recording this, the Iowa caucuses will have happened, so we don't know the outcome yet. How do you see this year rolling out as you're studying and covering Trump, DeSantis, Haley, all of them? Mike Johnson, what does the right look like in 2024?
1: All right, in Congress, they're totally just going to keep throwing speaker after speaker out the moment that someone comes into office and goes, wait, I need to be kind of pragmatic in order to keep the government running. Right now, the House conservative hardliners are really, really pissy at Mike Johnson, who's like ostensibly one of them, but keeps coming back to them with bills that maintain provisions and funding for things that they just like fundamentally dislike. Doesn't go far enough on the border, for instance, or uh, they continue to put any money whatsoever into IRS funding. And there is a real chance that they actually do use the motion to vacate on him just because he's sort of a traitor to them.
0: And as I said before, betrayal is the ultimate sin for these people.
1: Mm. Like. They didn't like McCarthy, but I think most of them were okay keeping them, him in because he was a really good-
0: They didn't like him, but they knew him.
1: They knew him. They knew exactly what he was. He, they knew he was transactional. They knew he didn't really believe anything, but he, they knew- And he that, raised like... him a bunch of money. Yeah. But like he would get things done, and that would be fine, and they could complain about it, and he could also just say, like, screw you guys. I'm the Speaker. I do what I want. And then the moment that the motion to vacate did come up, my reporting indicated that- a lot of the people who ended up voting for McCarthy's removal, other than like Matt Gates and Nancy Mace and maybe Eli Crane, a lot of them were motivated by the fact that their bases back home really, really, really wanted them to stick it to Washington. Like if the MTV hadn't come up, I'm sure they would continue to rail about it, but also be privately OK with not having to pull the trigger on that.
0: Yeah, because also, you know, we have these 18 Republican members who live in districts that Biden won in 20, right? And they have to keep taking these votes on McCarthy, on, you know, Jim Jordan, as speaker, now is Mike Johnson, as speaker. Like, it ain't getting better after Mike Johnson. And I'm also curious, just as an aside, Mike Johnson was a backbencher. I mean, do you think he walks into the speaker's office every morning or he gets picked up by his detail and whatever? And he's sort of like, what the F did I get myself into? I mean, it very well could be that he's in over his head because I don't care how many times he says Jesus told him this was going to happen. I don't believe he really believes that. That he's just like, oh God, I actually have a job. I'm a constitutional officer now and these idiots don't get it.
1: That has to be on his mind. I would confidently say that that is on his mind. And it is much easier to be an ideologue who can say all sorts of hard right things as long as you don't have to pay the consequences for it. But the moment that the rubber hits the road, and I think I've seen this with every conservative who's ever tried to ascend to a position of power, their ideology has to take a backseat to getting things done. And it really depends on whether they're able to hew to that ideology.
0: So I attended the University of Texas at Austin, and I was never a college Republican, Uh, you know, As long as I worked in the party, I grew up and I was not really a party guy. And that exact kind of thing that you're talking about happened every semester on the campus of UT with the college Republicans. They'd elect a new president at the beginning of the fall semester. Everybody would love this person for about a month. Then they would hate that person and spend the rest of the semester getting rid of them until they found their new leader to start the second semester, the spring semester. And by the end of the school year, Tina, that person was out of a gig, too. And it went that way every freaking year. And I was like, I don't have anything to learn from you people. I don't care that much. I worked for the governor. So, like, did I really need this anyway? So, like, that ethos starts at the beginning. The purity tests are never passed. They're always failed.
1: I mean, I don't know whether it's purely a Republican impulse. Like we were just talking about John Fetterman undergoing the same process right now. I think the difference, though, is that conservatives, particularly Tea Party ideologues, are more willing to use the nuclear option. And the funny thing is that like I'm not sure like Jim Jordan I think is probably the most trusted hardliner among the Republican right right now. Obviously, the moderates really hate him. The Democrats, of course, consider him like anathema. But the moment he has to come out of like, say he got elected speaker, the moment he emerges from a room with a bill that gives the Democrats something of what they want, he's going to face. Really intense scrutiny from enough members of that hard right who, unfortunately, in the makeup of this Congress, can get rid of him. Like it's literally one person and they hold a two seat majority at this point. And that also goes back to the thing we were talking about earlier with the way that Republicans are good at hijacking the rules and breaking things. Like they have studied this long enough to know what lever to pull to make everything grind to a screeching halt or like veer off in their direction.
0: You know, I used to attend these meetings, you know, of moderate Republicans and the listeners have heard me tell this before. And, you know, they'd try and figure out how do we get rid of Trump, but save the party. And, and Rick and I and others would be like, they're one in the same. You can't kill one without killing the other. And they'd be like, no, that's not true. And I'm like, you guys got to understand, like the regular world is playing chess and Trump comes along and eats the pieces it's not the same thing you're used to. Now you're looking at an empty board going, what the hell am I supposed to do now? And most people just sit there with their mouths agape. And that's how this guy and so much of this stuff has happened. Is that when the time has come to say no more, right? Okay. This time we really mean it. Okay. This time we really mean it. They don't really mean it because they don't know what to do. And oftentimes it's, you know, sort of the grab them by the belt ethos, which is you got to stay in these people's faces all the time and see, okay, are you really willing to go through this I think we unfortunately we really have our answer for a lot of people on the right from the top all the way down to the types that you know showed up on January sixth three years ago which is oh yeah we're really willing to do this stuff
1: it's a cycle that just keeps happening and happening and happening and man it's been an interesting process going through all of these interviews for the book because sometimes I just have to I just face this wall of like disbelief that the things I'm saying are true and are happening And I'll put it this way. I was telling my editors at Politico that there was a massive likelihood of political violence going into January 6th. And they were like, why are you covering this? This all seems to be like stuff on the internet. And I was finding ways to cover it in a way that connected it to the White House and the orders coming from the president because I was, by job title, a White House reporter. And the moment that during covid Three people tweet online, "Hey, maybe hydroxychloroquine can cure COVID." To the moment it like leaps out of Trump's mouth, like this crazy internet stuff becomes actionable policy that leads to people dying. But there was still this disbelief that Stuart Rhodes, the Oath Keeper, head going on Alex Jones and saying, "We got to take our country back. Uh, this is unconstitutional. We have sovereign citizens. Have the right to do whatever it takes." when you have that ideology come in and aim itself at the federal government, you know things are going to go bad. But one, and here's the, like, here's something that I don't think is covered very well or deeply understood. One, my editors were like, okay, fine. You can go to the Capitol on January 6th and interview people who are there to harass lawmakers. But two, I... Went to the Capitol in advance the night before, and I was scouting out security because I figured, you know, the Capitol security should have really good threat assessment. And it was just like fences. Like I've been to the Capitol for inaugurations, big security events, and there was way more security to even approach the Capitol than there was that day. And so I was thinking, like, I mean, if the Capitol police, with all their resources, say that it's okay, then I don't know, maybe I'm overhyping it. I was still prepared going in, but the back of my mind was like, "Mm, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Sure. And I file and I start texting with my editor, like, what should I do if things get crazy? Because there's an idea that I have, a scenario I think of where counter protesters come in and then there's mass violence between Antifa and Proud Boys or Black Lives Matter and Proud Boys. And he goes, you know, you should just go into the Capitol. The security there is ubiquitous. And right. thankfully, I was outside the Capitol on um, everything locked down. But, oh, my God, if I had listened to that advice,
0: I would have been so screwed. No. And I, and I think that's, you know, to, as we start to wrap up here, Tina, I think this is a big part of why we are where we are is the unwillingness or inability to have the imagination, frankly. Right. I mean, we started saying in the summer of 2020 that the election won't be over on November 7th or whatever it was. It won't be over until Joe Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th, 2021, because we didn't have any confidence whatsoever the guy was going to go quietly. And if he if you would just been listening to him and taking him seriously and literally, you would have known that this wasn't a surprise, the manner of it, the tactics of it, the place of it. Maybe we couldn't have figured that out, but people like you and and many other journalists who understood the signals and the online stuff, like understood. I mean, Steve Bannon said, strap in. Tomorrow's going to be something you can't possibly understand. Like you listen to his show. First of all, it's brain melting, but like it, he tells you like guys like this, they tell you movements like this. They always tell you. And for whatever reason, whether or not it's Democrats, the mainstream media or individual Americans either can't believe it or don't want to believe it, but that willful ignorance has led us to the precipice, Tina, from my perspective and our collective perspective, to a very dark place. Mm.
1: Sometimes I do feel like I'm cursed with knowledge. But, yeah, no, people do keep asking me, like, how it is that I can continue to report on the right. And thankfully for me, I find it simple just because I already know the backstory and I can speak the language and know the culture and know exactly, like, what means what and who... Some of these people were my best friends, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but um, the thing that I've, I was recommended to do, and this was when I was ranting about this to my therapist who also does appear in the book, was, look, you're always going to run into people who don't believe you, and it's because you're telling them these things that they find horrifying and unbelievable, and they will just not want to believe you, and the only thing you can do is just keep going with it. Right.
0: Right. Listen, that's why I call myself your friendly neighborhood, Cassandra, right? Like, it may not be the thing you want to hear. And if you don't believe it, that's at your peril. But like, we're out here for a reason. Um, Tina, tell us where we can find you on social media. If you still dare to tread there, where can we find your work at Puck? And tell us a little bit more about your book and all the things you're doing around it.
1: Sure. So Instagram is the last win, uh, as in there is multiple wins and I am the last one. Twitter slash X is Tina underscore Nguyen. I recently learned that book TikTok was a thing. So now I am on TikTok. Literally have a separate phone just to post that stuff. So I don't run into security risks. But that's Tina Win writes. Do I have other social media? I, LinkedIn, I guess. Tina Win Nerd. Uh, I don't have a Strava account, unfortunately. No one can track where I'm running. <laughs> and where can we find you at Puck. Puck. Literally, I'm on the front page. Um, Tina Nguyen, author. We also have a newsletter that has all of the Washington and political coverage called The Best and the Brightest. And so every week it's me, Julia Ioffe, who writes about foreign policy, Tara Palmieri, who really understands the Washington culture, uh, Peter Hamby and Abby Livingston, who is a much deeper reporter on Congress than I ever will be. I just know how to talk to the people who know how to break it.
0: No, and you—you you guys have really assembled an incredible collection of reporters across your verticals, whether or not that's politics, finance, tech, Hollywood. If you want the tea that's being spilled, Puck is the place you're going to find.
1: Oh, we got the best tea, the hottest, tastiest tea. <laughs> and the Maga Diaries is wherever books are sold, and there is an audiobook version coming out, which I narrate, and it's fun, and. Yeah. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, local independent bookstore, what have you. I'll probably be doing a bunch of television on it, depending what happened with Donald Trump yesterday in Iowa. I might be on TV telling you in a shorter but hopefully pithy way exactly how MAGA is going to start stomping all over America. And then I'm gonna go and make soup and just sit quietly in the corner and think some more and then call more people.
0: Awesome. As always, thanks. And again, guys, the book is The MAGA Diaries. Go out and get it. It is out now. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on Instagram and threads at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and on Substack at the home front. Tina Wynn, congratulations on the book. Come back and see us. Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you wanna message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you wanna personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.